Well, good morning to everyone and to those online. Welcome to you as well. Very glad that you can join us. It's a blessing to see a little clearer skies outside, uh, but uh, we still need to keep uh, firefighters and so on in prayer that are um, still working on the mop-up work because it's not over yet, uh, but uh, certainly we're thankful that uh, things are much more under control, and I know folks that live along the, the road over there on the west side are... are uh, Trying to, trying to feel good about breathing a sigh of relief. Um, and uh, it's certainly an answer to prayer. Did not look very hopeful there for a while. But it's a remarkable thing how when things looked particularly threatening, that the wind would change or drop altogether. Um, and then we had some rain and uh, some high humidity and some other things that were not expected, not forecast, and yet... The Lord is in charge of all of that, is he not? So we're thankful for his sovereign care over even those, those are the people there. It's not mundane, but the mundane affairs of men, right? He's in charge of all of that as well as what we think of as the big stuff. So uh, praise to him. Well, we are talking about confidence uh, as we've been working through the book of First John. And we come now to what is the last section of the book in 1 John chapter 5 that begins at verse 13. So if you'll turn to 1 John chapter 5, if you're able to stand, please join me as I read uh, beginning at verse 13 and working our way down to the end of the book. 1 John chapter 5 beginning at verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. God adds his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Please be seated. <clears throat> in the heart of the country of Myanmar, there in Southeast Asia, in what is uh, the, kind of the highlands of the country, is a beautiful lake called Inlay Lake. And Inlay Lake is uh, quite large, relatively shallow. Uh, there's a tribe of people that live uh, there on the lake, the Inta people, and they are known for their... 
floating gardens and their entire villages that are built on stilts in the middle of the lake and they go out and they harvest the hyacinth and other vines out of the lake and they get them off uh, off the bottom and they they have little float sacks on them so once they cut them loose they float and they mat them all together and then they grow their gardens on that um, they live their whole lives on the lake you only get there by boat that, all that kind of stuff uh, a number of years ago when I was there uh, did, I, I'm going to resist the temptation to tell you some of the stories about the lake but nonetheless uh, they live there, they die there, they bury their dead there, everything. Okay. Um, they also go to market there, and they have their temples and so on that are built on stilts out in the middle. And I remember taking a, a, a trip out to one of the little temples that they had out there in the middle of the lake. Really remarkable um, thing. This one's particularly known around the country. Tom will appreciate this. The place was overrun with cats. <laughs> Um, they were kind of sacred cats, um, and they, yeah, they were everywhere. I'm sure they're, you know, out in the middle of the lake, they brought them out there. I'm not sure, I guess rats can swim, but there, I doubt that there were many rats around there because there were so many cats. <clears throat> but also of note, besides the cats, was the, the, the room where they had all of the, the idols, all the gods. And they were in a row, about as long as uh, the sanctuary here. And uh, they uh, had them lined up so their backs were to each other. And facing out, uh, you could walk around. And of course, the idea uh, in the worship there is you would go from God to God and make your, your little offerings to, to all of them as you went and did the circuit. But what was really remarkable is that whether they were gods that had hideous faces or uh, beautiful faces, they were all you know, painted, very colorful, uh, gilt with, uh, gilded with gold and all of that kind of stuff. But when you walked around, there was, a, there was a, an aisle, not quite as wide as this middle here, where the priest could go back and forth, I guess, to attend to whatever they needed to attend to. Uh, behind the, in between the idols there. The face of the idols, all carved, all beautiful, all painted. The back, shapeless, without form, just rough wood, uh, not painted at all. It was just a one-sided God. <laughs> and it's, you know, as we walked around, I was like, whoa, look at that. Clearly, there is... Nothing of substance here. It's a facade. And yet people still were in there devoutly, devoutly worshiping uh, these, these false gods. These, it, it reminded me of that passage in the prophets that, in Isaiah where it's like, you know, <clears throat> with uh, you take a chunk of wood and half of it you carve into the god, the other half you throw it on the fire to warm yourself. Are you an idiot? That's not quite Isaiah's wording, but it's pretty close. Um, and are you so foolish that you really think that that's a God? Now, we've had this amazing journey through First John. I'm not sure that it was what any of us were expecting when we went through it. As we all, First John's one of those books that 
most of us have a, if we've grown up in the church especially, we have a pretty good idea of what it's all about. And it just seems, you know, it's all about assurance and it's, you know, you know make, making sure you've walked through a few tests to make sure you're God's and okay, on we go. Obviously there's been a lot more uh, in this book than just that. And we noted at the very beginning uh, and have continued to call it to our memories that throughout this epistle, John has stated numerous times his reasons for writing this book. I'm writing to you because, and then he gives us a number of different reasons. And some of those reasons that he wrote this book to the, uh, to the believers of his day were he wanted them to have full joy in their salvation. He wanted them to have freedom from sin. He wanted them to know Jesus Christ. He wanted them to walk in integrity. He wanted them to have sure knowledge. He wanted them to have discernment about who uh, and what was really of God and who and what were not. He wanted them to have a loving relationship with God. And he wanted, he, yes, indeed, he wanted them to have assurance of their salvation, the salvation that is, was brought to them, given to them by a God whose testimony is greater than any. And all of those reasons are, are summed up here in this last section. In verse 13, you might remember, it's been a little while before when we started chapter 4, but verse 13 of chapter 5 is kind of the governing statement for this whole last section, which began in verses four, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, do you want to know that you have eternal life? Do you want to have that confidence, that confidence that he speaks of here in chapter 5 and verse 14? This is the confidence that we have toward him. And that confidence, that word, uh, is not just about feeling relatively warm and fuzzy and good about what God has promised. The word means boldness. The boldness that we have before God, it, it almost seems, and in fact, there are, some, there are some religious traditions, some even claiming to be Christian, who think it is arrogant for you to say, I know that I'm a Christian and I know that I'm going to heaven. Church of Rome is one of those. You can't know that. It seems cheeky. But John says, this is the boldness that you have. This is the boldness that is ours, that we have toward God. That we actually have a relationship with him. We may know confidence. We may know uh, peace in our relationship with him. Back to those... those, uh, half-carved idols. I don't know if any of you have ever witnessed worship in any of those places that are like that. But there is no confidence. There is no boldness. There is only uh, half-despairing, maybe this will happen if I do, if I get everything right and I do it all right. And hopefully I will. But that's not the kind of confidence that John wants for you and me. 
It's not what he wanted for the people of his day who were dealing, as you will remember if you've been here a while, who were dealing with false teachers who were essentially putting before God's people half-carved idols of who Jesus Christ is. They'd emphasize one aspect or the other, either his humanity or his deity, to the exclusion of the other, or some conglomeration of something that made no sense whatsoever, all in an effort to, to call into question what, what the Lord revealed about himself and had been revealing about himself from the very beginning, but most fully and perfectly in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, some of them uh, would put forth the idea that uh, just just the half of Jesus that was God and the others would put the, the half of Jesus that was man were not willing to have a three-dimensional, full-orbed God. They were false gods in whom there could be no confidence, only division and confusion and fear. I want you to think about this for a second. When John then writes and says, I'm writing to you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Can you imagine the, can you imagine eternal life with a half-carved God? Do you really want eternal life with a God who is empty of power, empty of true majesty, empty of actual wisdom, empty of even being able, as the as Isaiah said, they've got they've got eyes but they can't see, they've got ears but they can't hear. Do you really want a God like the like Baal, who uh, the prophets of Baal had to, you know, they were dancing and cutting themselves and yelling and screaming and and all of that, uh, but there was no answer. You know, when I started looking at this last section, again, this, there's very little in this book that has really manifested itself the way that a casual reading uh, would suggest that it, it does. When you start digging into it just a little bit, you start to see the brilliance of, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, of John's, John's letter here. This, from verse 13 through 21, as I read through it, you may have thought, it sounds like a closing letter of a guy who's just trying to throw the last few thoughts randomly in before he's signing off. Oh, here, let me think about this. Oh, yeah, and this, and oh, yeah, this. But if you re- stop for a second, back up, read it again, and start looking at how it's structured, you realize that there's nothing random whatsoever about it. It is pulling together all the themes that we've talked about in this book and driving them home in a very, very powerful way. And you might have caught not only the word confidence, this is the confidence or the boldness that we have toward God in all of this, but you might have caught how many times the word no is in these few verses. There's the you know that's at the beginning of it there that you may know. Uh, But then all the rest is we know, we know, we know, we know, we know. Seven times in this short passage. This is the kind of, when you have that kind of certainty of what you know, 
Uh, that's where that confidence and boldness comes in. If any of you have ever gone in to ask for a raise or a promotion in the workplace, think about that for a minute. If you've done that, were you nervous? A lot depends, the answer to that question would depend on how well you knew your superior, your boss, how well you knew your job, how confident you were of, of the material, of the, the substance of what you do in your work. If you know your stuff and you know your boss, you've got a good relationship, you still might feel like, okay, I'm, this might be a little bit cheeky to go in, but okay, I'm going to be bold and go in and ask this and not really be all that ner nervous. But if uh, you're worried you might lose your job, if you're still a little shaky on something, but you just want more money, or you don't get along well with the boss, well, it gets to be a little more nerve-wracking, does it not? God uh, does not want us to approach him that way. He wants us to come to him with boldness. <clears throat> and that's... John has been dealing with a bunch of people whose faith has been rattled by the false teachers, and he wants their boldness before God to be restored. As he does that, there are basically four divisions here that, where he speaks about the things that we know. We know. And when you, when you start mapping it out, you go, oh, oh, look at that. Yeah. And then it all just, you see the structure there that he puts in there, and it's, it's beautiful. We are going to spend time on the first section of we knows, which is verses 14 through 17. We'll do that today, and then God willing, we'll uh, cover the remainder next week. And I think you'll see why I'm going to take so much time on the first one, because it's, it's kind of a big one. First of all, 14 through 17, it's the largest section of this. Uh, John clearly is trying to make a point here. And, and I've been thinking this week, trying to come at why... Why this one? And when it occurred to me why this particular blessing that we will know in eternity is so important, it, it's like the light went on. It's like, oh, of course. The first one here uh, is found uh, beginning of verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then he's going to go on and speak about prayer. And prayer in some very interesting ways. John wants us to know that we have eternal life. There are some incredible blessings that we're going to unpack here in this short passage. And prayer leads the way. Can you think about eternity without conversation with God? Get a taste of it here. And the taste that we have is something that, as we go through this, I really want to challenge you to think hard about your own prayer life and your approach to it. I, would, I will uh, assert with you as well as with, to my own self, as I look in the mirror, that we don't pray the way we should. And I'm not just talking about content. 
So let's work through this. Let's think about this, this eternal blessing, this knowing that we have eternal life and the blessings that are in store for us, beginning with the matter of answered prayer. Prayer. Or again, we could talk about uh, conversation. Conversation with the Lord. In verse 14, um, note first that this prayer is heard. This is your confidence that, you're, that you have, the boldness that you have. That he's, he is actually, um, when it says hears, it, it means he's paying attention. He's actually listening. It's not just that the sound bounces off his eardrums, metaphorically speaking. It's that he actually listens. He's actually paying attention. We, if we ask anything according to his will, we're going to come back to that according to his will in a moment. But uh, we know that we have this confidence because he's listening. He is actually paying attention. Uh, the uh, uh, pastor and theologian uh, John Stott, uh, in his commentary on this passage, made this statement, which I think is a remarkable one. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. It is by prayer that we seek God's will, embrace it, and align ourselves with it. As we come to the Lord, we are not just praying to a carved image, a lifeless thing. We're praying to the one who actually has a will, who actually exists, who has existed from eternity past. And when we are in prayer with him, as he commands us to do, to pray without ceasing, it's not just an empty exercise for the believer. We're recognizing that it is a conversation. I, I hope that when you pray, that you pray with that recognition and that, that confidence before the Lord. That you're not just rattling off a bunch of words just to get it over with because you're supposed to pray. You know, when we're little as children, we do that a lot, right? I mean, we, we uh, pray for certain things. We know we're supposed to. Mommy and Daddy are teaching us to pray. And so we thank the Lord for Mommy and Daddy. We pray that we have a nice day and pray for our dog and pray for our boo-boos or whatever else. And those are sweet and tender prayers, and we love them uh, to hear our children pray them. But they, uh, they are prayers of children. And as we mature, Lord willing, our prayers should uh, develop a little bit more than that. But sometimes I think that we just get in the habit of saying, well, I should pray at night, or I should pray before my meal, and we rattle through our our little thing that we do because this is what we do now. Instead of really thinking about prayer <clears throat> as a conversation with the one who is listening. One of the big things that, uh, of course, is everywhere uh, these days is social media and you know, devices, you know, our phones and all of that. And people are you know, buried in our phones. And we can have a conversation with somebody. You ever, you ever had a conversation with somebody that, doing this? 
Do you really feel like you had a conversation? Probably not. Because the fact is, you didn't really. Not anything that was actually meaningful. Uh, it's a good idea to put those things down. I can be terrible about it. I've got to put the thing down. Yes, and actually listen. Uh, Karen and I, we, we have our conversations, and I'm, I'm worse about this than she is, but she'll say, <clears throat> I told you about this, blah, 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 whatever it was, and I'm like, you did? <coughs> uh, I don't remember that. <laughs> My focus was somewhere else. I wasn't listening the way I should listen. Our God is listening. He is, if I can put it this way, all ears. He is attending to his children. He listens to our cries. And we need to have that confidence and know that for eternity, we won't have to do the intermediate praying. We'll be in face-to-face mode in conversation with our God. Let that sink in for a little bit. Think of what it, would, what it will be like to be in conversation, communion, fellowship with God as we ask questions and He gives answers and He challenges our thinking and reveals something else to us about His incredible character and person. And we marvel all over again and give him praise, and he receives it, and we have this back and forth, it's going to be incredible. In fact, if you think about it from the opposite side of things, you know, there's a, there's a misunderstanding in the world, isn't there, that's uh, very common, where people who are wicked and they want to remain that way will talk about, yeah, that's fine, uh, I don't care if I'm going to hell, at least all my friends will be there. Yeah, but you won't be talking to them. You'll be in utter darkness and isolation, cut off from, you talk, it's the ultimate horrifying, solitary confinement for eternity without conversation. God created us to be communing, conversing, interacting beings with Him and with each of us. And for eternity, we know, we'll know that blessing uh, to know that God is paying attention and we can be in conversation with him. Let's think about the nature of that conversation. John makes it clear here that, <clears throat> that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And so that's the second aspect of this prayer. The prayer that is proper. Prayer that is proper. You know, in James chapter 4, we have the opposite um, uh, kind of prayer spoken of, uh, where James is warning the believers there about the quarrels and the fights and all of that, the mess that's in the world. And where does all that come from? It comes from all of your, your own lust, your own sins. Um, you desire, do not have. Your passions are at war within you. You covet, you cannot obtain. So you fight and quarrel. You, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We can pray for a lot of things, can we not? That have nothing to do with God's will. It's all about what we want. But as we pray according to God's will, something happens. <clears throat> when you look at the, the Psalms of David, or the prayers of Abraham and Moses, there are some of the prayers, the prayers that are there, 
are astonishingly bold in their approach to God. They pray for God's judgment upon the enemies of God, or they pray for God's mercy upon those who are in opposition to Him. They pray for His provision. They look at incredible trial and incredible opposition and affliction, and they pray for deliverance, fully expecting that it's going to be there. I always think of of Abraham. (laughs) And I know I've said this before, but I, I always... This is to my... This is my fault. I, I cringe sometimes when I read about Abraham asking the Lord for mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. Lord, if there's 50 people. Okay, 50. How about 40? If there's 40. Okay, 40. How about 30? <laughs> Abraham, stop. You, you, you need to just, okay, you're good to go. How about 20? Gets all the way down to five. Or ten. Anyway. And you just sit there and go, Abraham, stop. Stop. But he doesn't stop. He's bold before the Lord. He's praying because he knows that his God is a God of mercy. He knows it because God has showed mercy to him. He has boldness before God. He knows that he can pray according to God's will because he knows that God is a God of mercy. When David prays for judgment upon God's enemies, he knows that he's praying in God's will because God uh, will destroy those who are in rebellion against him. And it's appropriate to pray that God's justice and holiness be upheld in the way that he deals with those who are in rebellion against him. David was not praying to be petty. I just want to get those enemies. No, he's praying that God would be consistent to his own character. Now, what this really implies is that you and I know what God's will is, which means that we're going to be spending a lot of time in his word. If you don't do that, don't pretend that you know God's will. Bottom line. Because his will is revealed there in his word. But as you understand who he is and what his will is and what his character is and how he acts in the world, you'll be able to pray in ways that you perhaps cannot even imagine right now. And look what we see in verse 15. I, 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 I got excited about this point. Um, because there's some things here that, that just, yeah, you see it. And we've read it many times, no, doubtlessly, uh, but look what you see here in verse 15. We know, uh, well, we know that he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the questions, uh, the requests, sorry, that we have asked of him. We know that he, if he, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we asked of him. Pretty simple statement. <laughs> I had trouble reading it, but nonetheless, pretty simple statement. We know that whatever we ask, do you see any limitation there? We know that whatever we ask, 
He gives us the request. He grants the request. How many times have you read that, dear friends? Do you really grasp what John is saying there? This answered prayer that we get a taste of here, that will be this conversation that will be ours for eternity. Even here in this life, we have this blessing that we can begin to experience of prayer that is unfettered, unlimited. God doesn't say, you can ask for, a, you can ask for everything except for this, 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 and this. There's one caveat in this passage, and we're going to spend a little time talking about that caveat. But even there, it's not an absolute forbidding of asking the question. It's as John says, eh, not much point. Prayer that has no limits. Look at John chapter 15 and verse 16. This is... Christ is speaking to his disciples. He's speaking about them as his friends. He says in verse 15, I don't call you servants anymore for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends for you've heard from my father. For all that I've heard from my father, I've made known to you. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask, the Father, in my name, he may give it to you. Now, it is in the name of Christ that assumes that you're praying in accordance with God's will and character. But whatever means whatever. Do you believe that? Many of you have been involved in various management things, whether sometimes it may just be management at home, Sometimes it might be management in the, in the public sector or whatever. But uh, when you're in management, one of the things that you do is you sit around, as in the, like in The Wizard of Oz, you sit around and think great thoughts. Right? And you're thinking of these thoughts in a, with an aim to plan, an aim to put things together, you know, whether it's you're dealing with uh, some household issues, uh, you've got property, you've got business, you've got employee issues to deal with, or just thinking about policy decisions, changes that might need to be made, wh- whatever. There's a, there's, some, there's a tool that all of us are familiar with um, that, uh, that uh, you've all used, regardless what it is. And it's that thing where you make a list of all the ideas that come to your head. What's that called? Yeah, I heard somebody whisper, brainstorming, boldness, remember, boldness. (laughs) So brainstorming, one of the the things that you can do to ruin brainstorming as a tool is to do what? Put limits on it from the beginning. To sit there and go, oh, no, not that one. No, not that one. You're never going to get anywhere. In order for it to be a good brainstorming session, you put it all out there. And then once you've done that, then uh, you can start eliminating the stuff that won't work, stuff that's not right. Well, let me tell you something. 
When you come to prayer, don't hamstring the process by going, no, Lord, I can't pray for that. Well, I wonder what, no, I, I, boy, I, I don't see the Lord do, uh, answering that one. We do that all the time, either literally or just, uh, we might have those literal thoughts running through our minds, or we just, we're just not bold enough to say, Lord, you know, one of the reformers, give me England. <laughs> you know, um, Lord, let, do this for me. Um, Hezekiah on his deathbed, Lord, make the, the, the sun go back in time. Who, who does that? The Lord granted their request. Whatever means whatever. Don't put limits on the Lord because He doesn't have any. And He's promised that as you pray in faith, believing uh, and uh, praying according to His will, that the request that you ask will be granted to you. And I know I'm telling you stuff that you're... Because I have the same thoughts. It's like, yeah, well, what about... Um, can we get the yeah buts out of our vocabulary and take God at His Word and pray that way? I'm not talking about the charlatan, charlatan, the charlatan, okay, the fake stuff, sorry, that is done in the name of Jesus about praying this and that and the other and, you know, praying that you'll all be prosperous and praying that you'll have this and praying even necessarily being healed or whatever just because you want to be healed and you want to feel better and you're not really thinking about God's will so much. I'm talking about truly praying in God's name according to His will with the expectation that in His good time He and way He will answer that request because He is listening. Now that brings me to what John has here where he gives kind of a the supreme example of this kind of unfettered prayer and this kind of, of effectual prayer as he deals with prayer that is intercessory. Look at verses 16 and 17 of back in 1 John. This is a passage that can be a, a bit on the confusing side. So hang in there with me as we walk through this. But I think you'll see that it's really not so confusing when you just... Take a deep breath for a minute. Because we, we see stuff like sin not leading to death. And what does everybody think of? Wait a minute. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Was there a problem here? No, there's not a problem. Settle down. It's okay. Deep breath. Be all right. Okay. There's a word here that says, uh, we know. Uh, uh, after it says, uh, we, uh, we know that he hears us. You get down there in verse 17, it says, All wrongdoing is sin, but there is a sin that does not lead to death. And you're just, your brain's starting to explode as you're thinking about other passages. Um, wrongdoing comes from a word uh, that means to, uh, it means a disregard for what is right. At the root of this word is the Greek word for righteousness. And it starts off with a, the letter alpha at the beginning, ah, and then it gives the word, which means not righteous or, or not, not being concerned for righteousness. Um, 
What does it mean not leading to death or in sins that lead to death? Because after all, the wage of sin is death. Um, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And we know that if we remain in our sins, we will suffer eternal punishment and eternal death. So what is this not leading to death mean? Well, it's kind of a, it's kind of a, whole Bible concept. And I remember years ago, and I'm not sure, there's not very many here that were here when I went through uh, the studies of the covenants, historic covenants in the Old Testament. Um, but I, a couple of you, my family members particularly, have been through it a couple times with me. So we always have a big discussion when we get to the sacrifices in the Old Testament. Because the stipulation is really clear when it comes to the, the, the whole burnt offering and the sin offering for atonement. It's really clearly stated. If you premeditate your sin. You remember this? If you premeditated sin, there's no sacrifice for that. You won't get atoned. Your sins are not atoned for if you set out deliberately to rebel against God and do it. There's no, you, you can sacrifice, sorry to say, till the cows come home, but okay. <laughs> you can sacrifice all you want. But if you're, if you're in deliberate rebellion against God and you've done something deliberately, there's no sacrifice for sin. And that's a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. Then you've got passages like Romans chapter one, where those who are, uh, fixed and determined in their rebellion against God. It says that God gives them over to a reprobate mind and there's, there's no possibility of them being saved. In Hebrews chapter 6, someone is sitting in, the, in, the, in the, the church and sitting among God's people under the, the hearing of God's word and seeing the Spirit of God working and moving in people's hearts and lives, even ministering to their own hearts and lives. And it says, if they turn away, there is no longer any possibility for repentance. Those are hard things for us to hear. We don't want to hear it. But John is saying nothing more than that here. There are sins that we may come before God with every hope of restoration, with every hope of forgiveness, with every hope of cleansing, and there is a sin for which there is no remedy. That's what he's talking about here. He's not somehow missed the fact that sin leads to death. John's well aware of that. So sin that doesn't lead to death means there is hope of forgiveness, and sin that leads to death means there is no hope of forgiveness, no hope of remedy. If every sin was not able to be atoned for, well, then the gospel would be pointless to even talk about it, wouldn't it? But there is an unpardonable sin. In Matthew chapter 12, verses 31 and 32, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, speaking a word against the Son of Man, he is speaking particularly of himself 
as in his earthly ministry there because he was taking a lot of flack from people and from the Jews and so on that were attacking him. And he's telling the, um, the disciples here that, yeah, I'm, uh, I mean, didn't he model that on the cross? He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Uh, notice he did not pray for those who deliberately put him there in spite of everything. He prayed for like the Roman soldiers and others who didn't know what they were doing. They were just following orders and they may have been making fun, they may have been mocking and doing all those other things, but they could be forgiven. But not so those who uh, knew exactly what they were doing and uh, went against what the Spirit of God who spoke to not just what was visible out there as far as Jesus' external ministry, but the Spirit of God who spoke to the heart and convicted of sin to blaspheme against him and say that uh, he is not God. I do not have to obey what he has to say. I I can ignore what his promptings are. Um, That you speak against the Spirit of God, uh, you will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. As one writer put it, the unpardonable sin is deliberate rebellion against the truth of Christ clearly presented, which, of course, that's the job of the Holy Spirit. John doesn't see much hope in praying for their repentance. And when you look at this, he says, I don't say, I don't say you should pray for that, that one should pray for that. He doesn't see uh, that there's much point in it. It's... <clears throat> There's quite a bit of discussion that goes on. Verse 16 there. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Um, We'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. Uh, There is a sin that leads to, that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. He drops the brother aspect there. I think John is making it pretty pointed right here that, um, the false teachers who have been denying the inspiration of God's word um, and the ministry of that word with the Old and the New Testament as it had been developed that far uh, regarding the Lord Jesus Christ. Those false teachers were, were taking the testimony of the Spirit regarding Christ and disregarding it and twisting it and perverting it. I don't believe John thinks of them as brothers no matter what they might say. And he doesn't encourage prayer on that regard for those folks. Um, the sacrifices, I've already mentioned this about the, the Old Testament, those sacrifices were only efficacious for unpremeditated sin, and that same principle applies here. Um, but here's, we'll wrap up with this last thought. Okay? I I want you to catch this phrase because it's easy to run right over it and and, uh, just miss it. Uh, Verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. Now that's the ESV's translation and I understand why they do that. But grammatically... Um, inserting God, uh, the word God is not in the original text. The original word there is the pronoun he. 
So they're making an assumption, an interpretive, interpretative dis- assumption that, that God is the one who gives life because we know that God gives life. Jesus gives life. Where this, it, it's, it's a way, theologically, you can see a reason why they would interpret this way. Grammatically, it's problematic. And it fundamentally changes what's going on here. It doesn't disregard God's part in changing people's hearts and giving people life. But it, if, if you don't read it according to the grammar, you miss the efficacy, the power of your prayer as God deems to use it in his mercy. And I, this is what I want you to get a hold of here. <clears throat> if you read it this way, he shall ask, and, uh, and if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and he will give him life. Now let that sink in for a minute. Grammatically speaking, that and is a real strong and, and it links those two clauses together so that to force another subject into it is, is awkward. It doesn't work as well. But we have to do some mental theological gymnastics to figure out, okay, wait a minute, are we saying that if I pray for somebody, I'm giving them life? All right. Look at James chapter 5, 19 and 20. Some of you are looking at me like, okay, pastor, where are you going with this? James chapter 5, 19 and 20. Now this is in that Speaking about the prayer of faith, uh, there at the end of uh, the book of James, anyone suffering, let him pray. Um, anyone sick, let him call the elders for the ch- for the elders of the church and let them pray, anointing with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. I wonder how much we really believe that. Um, when you get to uh, verses nineteen and twenty, take a look at this, my brothers. If anyone among you wanders from the truth and brings, some, brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, do any of us read that and go, well, you see, I'm saving them. No, we recognize in the way that it's put there, it's, it's really clear that he's speaking about you as an instrument are used of the Lord in his mercy to draw others out of the fire, snatch them from the burning, and and in essence, though not in reality, but uh, save them, save them. You deliver them from that that life and uh, the condemnation of sin. Indeed, when we pray for our brothers' sins to be forgiven. You will give your brother life. This is powerful prayer. This is not the way we usually think of prayer. We say our little requests, and then we just go, well, it's up to God now. And you know, it is up to God. Absolutely. He's the one who has to does the work, has to do the work. He's the one who has to regenerate. He's the one who has to convict. He's the one who has to redeem and, and all of that. Absolutely. But he uses us as means. And we need to acknowledge that, that when we pray, we need to pray fervently in faith, according to God's will. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray that way. 
and not doubt. We have so little faith. Jesus in Matthew 17, what did he tell the disciples? If you pray with faith as a grain of mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move and it'll be cast into the sea. I don't think we believe that. I really don't. We just don't pray that way. But we need to. James 1 verse 6 says, particularly speaking of wisdom, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But in that context, he says, let him, you know, let him ask without doubting. And God will grant it to you. I don't think, again, go back up to the fact that it's whatever. It's, it's limitless. God's not saying only in wisdom is that the case. John seems to say that this conversation that we have between us and God is one that is remarkable for the way that God listens to us and responds to us. And we need to believe it. The false teachers of John's day were talking about a Jesus who couldn't do anything. Who couldn't carry out God's plan. But the true Jesus certainly could. And is worth talking to. Beloved, we need to pray with more faith. And ask the, and pray that the Lord would give us more faith so that we can pray with more faith. Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief should be our mantra that we pray over and over again. This is the power of prayer. We, we uh, sang, I believe it was in the last hymn we, we sang in 167, Is the next to the last verse? Where do we see that? Ah, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Verse 4. Here may we prove the power of prayer to strengthen faith and sweeten care, to teach our faint desires to rise and bring all heaven before our eyes. Do we pray that way? We pray with that kind of confidence. John says this is one of the this is part of eternal life. This is part of the blessings that he wants us to know. Beginning now. Because eternal life, beloved, if you're in Christ, starts now. It's not some okay, eternity eternity is eternity, and it, it has no beginning, so we're in the middle of it, and it's no end. To live eternal life of blessing with the Lord, that we would know that includes this conversation conversation that we can have now and it will only get better and become perfect when he comes again for us let's pray that way let's pray with that kind of confidence whether it's for salvation of others whether it's uh, for recovery from from illness or deliverance to stop to change to change the direction of wind to bring rain I don't know how many of you were praying for those things. I sure was. And watch the Lord do it. And I'm not surprised. 
He did it. So let's pray with that kind of confidence in and boldness that we can have a conversation with our Lord and a conversation that is full, a conversation that's rewarding, a conversation that's intelligent, a conversation that brings about His will and our good. And God be praised that He is a God who delights to commune with us in prayer. Bow with me, please. Thank you, Father, that you are an amazing, amazing God who is real, three-dimensional, full, full-orbed, and beyond three dimensions. Lord, you defy all of our imagination as to who you are, and yet you listen to us. You challenge us to challenge you. Lord, we know that no challenge is beyond you. We know that no no need or no care is beyond your ability to, to address and solve. Help us to pray boldly. Lord, help us to pray boldly, not just for the things that um, are pleasant that we want, but help us also to pray for your honor and your integrity and your glory to be upheld, even to the punishment of the wicked. But Lord, help us to pray believing without doubting, knowing that you will grant us the joy of being your servants and allowing us the joy of seeing people restored, redeemed, recovered. Lord, we humble ourselves before you, yet in that humility, give us this boldness that John talks about. In Christ's name we pray.